Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May 2009 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and I'm joined by TLID editor John McConnell. John, we've got three items to discuss this month. Let's start with the first review that we're going to discuss and this is looking at something that I would have thought would have been studied by now and this is about the incubation period for predominantly respiratory viruses. What the authors have done in this systematic review is they've gathered uh, together data on several uh, respiratory viral infections, adenovirus for example, uh, influenza A, SARS, uh, rhinoviruses which cause colds and they have tried to uh, assemble the many um, fairly small studies on incubation periods which have been produced over the years and they've got data going back to the 19. 20s. From these data, they have uh, produced some uh, medium uh, and range figures on, uh, on incubation periods for these these viral infections. And how broad is this systematic review then? It covers quite a few viruses. It certainly it? does. I think I've lost count here. There's about uh, 10 different viral infections, I think. So we've got adenos, uh, coronaviruses in general, the SARS coronaviruses, various forms of influenza, parainfluenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and rhinovirus. I think the, the important thing here is um, we, we sort of needed definition of what we're talking about and then and the incubation period as we're uh, as the authors define it is the time between infection and uh, symptom onset so that that's what the uh, what, that's what the authors have attempted to establish as a, as a medium figure for these various viral infections Okay, and do you want to just give us a few examples of how the incubation times they calculate may vary? Let me just give you some numbers. So, for example, for an adenovirus infection, which can cause cold-like symptoms, they reckon that the medium incubation period is is 3.2 days. The range, which they give us a a 95% confidence interval, is 2.8 to 3.7 days. Let's look at influenza A, a a pretty common infection, one for which I I know, having been to a few meetings, that the the incubation period is, is quite a controversial subject. So the authors of this systematic review that reckon that the incubation period is the median period is 1.4 days but they give the range as quite a tight figure which is 1.32 to 1.5 days and then we could look at measles which is is known to have quite a long incubation period. So here for, for measles, they've calculated the median incubation is 12, 12.5 days, and it can range between 11.8 and, and 13.3. John, just broadly summarise, there are policy implications here, aren't there, particularly for quarantining? Yes, Richard. I mean, there are policy implications if you're going to be planning pandemic preparedness against uh, an influenza pandemic, for example. It's going to be very important to know that the incubation period is is around one and a half days. I think another important thing is for, for quarantine, so say in the uh, in the event that there's another another SARS outbreak and hopefully there never will be but say there was then it would be important to know that you need to keep uh, people in quarantine for the for the full range uh, of the period in, in which they might be incubating the disease the authors of this review reckon can be up to about four and a half days moving on John you've got another review and this is looking at toxic shock syndrome this first came to my attention uh, as a layperson, I guess, 20-plus years ago concerning the use of uh, tampons and that causing toxic shock syndrome. Well, that's right, yes. No, there was a bit of a... Um, there, there was certainly a, a, quite a lot of media fuss going back to the late 1970s about toxic shock syndrome associated with the use of tampons. So what the authors are describing here is what's called gram-positive toxic shock syndrome. So it's caused by gram-positive bacteria such as the uh, staphylococci and streptococci. And what can happen is that you'll get 
get a sort of multi-organ failure uh, presentation associated with infection with these organisms, which can then lead, because the um, the organisms produce uh, bacterial toxins, these act as very potent antigens, they can stimulate uh, immune cells, uh, you get uh, what the authors called rampant cytokine expression, uh, and then you unfortunately get a rather sort of snowballing effect where you'll have um, cell stimulation, more cytokine release, Eventually, unfortunately, you can get tissue, tissue damage, what's called uh, disseminated intervascular coagulation and uh, organ, organ failure and, and, and then unfortunately death. So in terms of the therapeutic strategies or options, John, what have we got here? Well, it's a tricky one because early identification of, of, of what the problem is, is 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 very important. And then you need to, if you can, identify what the source of infection is and remove that. Early administration of uh, antimicrobial agents, if at all possible, is, is key because, as I've said, there is a sort of um, self-perpetuating element to the, uh, to the shock process. So if you can get in early and uh, in, intervene with antimicrobial agents, then that, that, that that's good. What the authors recommend are antibiotics such as clindamycin or linazolid, which are known to um, be capable of suppressing the um, toxin production from the bacteria. And they also suggest that intravenous immunoglobins may have a, um, a role in uh, neutralizing the, the antigens released by the bacteria. And finally, John, a review, uh, which I've been practicing to pronounce this um, infection here, Stenotrophomonas monophilia. What's this all about? This is an emerging infection. Very close, Richard. I'm surprised you're struggling with this one. It's Stenotrophomonas maltophilia. So, <laughs> so this is an, an emerging gram-negative bacterial infection. The bug itself is not inherently particularly virulent. It's associated with environmental sources such as water, soil and plants. The reason it's becoming an increasing problem is because it can colonize the respiratory tract in patients who are in some way immune compromised by the, the various modern interventions which we have in contemporary medicine. As I say, it can colonize the respiratory tract, it can colonize catheters, it can colonize endotracheal tubes. So what we're talking about is a uh, is essentially a, a hospital-acquired infection. The main issue here, you say it's not, uh, you know, a terribly serious infection, although all infections obviously are to be avoided, but the main issue here is antibiotic resistance. It is, so it's a difficult infection to treat. So if it presents, as it typically seems to present as a pneumonia or a, a bloodstream infection, there are a limited range of antibiotics which can be used to treat the infection because the... Um, the bacteria is has a high level of intrinsic resistance to several classes of um, antibiotics, which include the uh, beta-lactams, quinolones, aminoglycosides.